Thanks for joining us here at Faith Assembly for our weekly podcast. We're so excited you're tuning in this week. To learn more about our church, you can visit us online at myfaithassembly.org. Join us live at our 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. services or connect with us on Facebook. Four years ago uh, was an intentional point for me in my spiritual and uh, uh, growth and in a place of just desiring the kingdom of God to come. Uh, four years ago, started reaching out, just making conversation and, and engaging in conversation to say, uh, I think I know what the kingdom of God looks like, but I need to let go of what I think I know and take a hold of what God wants to show me and reveal to me. As we go after the heart of God, he wants to expose some things so that he can bring what he needs to bring. Part of that uh, uh, in the fall then, I uh, got to uh, uh, spend a, a week or some days in Israel and there I met uh, Gerald Murphy. He was with us uh, in January, and uh, I've asked him to come again. We had conversation. I love his heart. He carries the kingdom of God, and uh, I've asked him to come today to speak to this issue, this matter uh, that is that is something I believe the church needs to lean into to allow healing to flow, that we ought to be the agents of God's healing and, and uh, reconciliation on the earth. How many know that he's given us the gift or the ministry of reconciliation? That's what we're called to do. This doesn't come from politics or from from the business sector. It comes from the kingdom of God, from the body of Christ. And so how many are desiring today to be even more the kingdom of God on the earth for God's glory? And so would you please welcome my friend Gerald Murphy as he comes to share the word with us today all the way from Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, man. Well, good morning. I'm grateful to be here with each of you. And I'm expecting the Lord to just move, and I'm expecting him to touch us. I'm expecting all of us to leave having an even greater ability to see and receive his heart uh, for his kingdom expanding in the earth. As Pastor Jason just spoke, I was here with you guys in January. I had an incredible time with you, and I feel like I'm coming back to family. And so today we get to have a family conversation, amen? And we get to have this conversation from the position that we share as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to have this conversation from our position that we share being kings and priests, amen, in the kingdom of our God. And it's important that we really give ourselves permission to step into that posture, to step into the alignment with the truth of who we are in Christ so that we can have this conversation in a manner that edifies, in a manner that ultimately equips us to continue to be uh, the light and the salt that we've been called to be in our community. I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning, and I want to pray three things specifically. I want to pray for the love of the Father to fill our hearts. I want to pray that we sit and we receive this word from that confidence of being children who are immeasurably loved, unconditionally loved by the Father. Secondly, I want to pray for the life of Christ to increase, to expand, to arise in us in a fresh and new way this morning. That's the invitation, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen? And thirdly, I want to pray this morning that we receive this word as those who are committed to being followers following the leadership of Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the invitation. And so pray with me this morning so that we can continue to come into God's heart. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your love. And I pray for a fresh grace to be poured out 
upon every single individual that in these next few moments that we share together, that you would surround us, that you would wrap us up, that you would envelop us in the reality, the tangible reality and awareness of your love for us. Jesus, we ask you this morning to come alive in us in a fresh way, that we would truly exchange our life for yours, that who you are, Jesus, our great high priest, eternally man, eternally God, our eternal sacrifice, we enter in today through the veil of your flesh with confidence and boldness to approach the throne of grace. We ask for your life, Jesus, to arise in us. Holy Spirit, we submit to your leadership this morning. You are the one who guides and leads us into all truth. It is not the opinion of man or even the experience of man that we need in this hour, but we need the revealed, illuminated truth of your holy word, of your ways. So Holy Spirit, we yield to you this morning. We submit to you. We get out of the way so that you can have your way. Search us, know us, our anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in us, Holy Spirit, so that we might be led into the way of everlasting this morning. We receive now the grace for what you're about to do, what you're about to give, what you're about to impart. And we thank you in advance for the fruit that's going to come from it in our lives, in our families, in this amazing church community, in Uniontown, in this region, in the earth. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can go to Luke chapter 4 with me this morning. I love being able to come to a community like this that I know has already been having this conversation, that you were not provoked by national news headlines, but you have been following the leadership of your pastor and the leadership of this church, engaging in a serious dialogue about God's heart for justice, about what his kingdom on the earth looks like as it relates specifically to seeing healing and restoration and reconciliation among ethnic groups, among races. And that makes a big difference. I've turned down more invitations than I've said yes to because this is a family conversation. And if we haven't already engaged in a posture and in a rhythm of unity around the gospel and around the kingdom and around the heart of God, this is actually not the first conversation that we should be having together. Amen? So I'm grateful to be with family this morning. As we have this conversation about God's heart for justice, you're going to hear me quote a lot of scripture, mainly because I just love the word. But you don't need my opinion. You need the word of God. I'm going to say a lot of things this morning that you're going to probably have to go Google as we start talking about some of the historical realities. And I would begin to unpack the present day realities of systemic racism that exists in our culture today. Google is a, a good friend most of the time. And so I encourage you, as you hear certain things, write it down. And, and I encourage you to go and, and, and research for yourself some of the things that I'm going to share. I'm going to share a couple of letters that I've written personally in my devotion time to, to help me process my own emotions and my own thoughts as it relates to the exposing and the revealing of the present existence of racism and hatred in our nation. But most of all, you're going to hear a lot of word. And I believe because of that, we'll all leave enriched and we'll all leave in a better position to continue to reflect the heart of our Father in this area of seeking his heart for justice and the reality of his kingdom in our community. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Bible says, 
Jesus speaking, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. And as we continue, the Bible says that after he stood and read this, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down in the eyes of all who were in the synagogue. They were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and they marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I'm sure many of you have heard this particular passage, this section of Luke chapter 4 preached many times. So have I, but very rarely have I heard the continuation of this chapter unpacked. You see, the people that Jesus was quoting Isaiah 61 to, they were excited, they, they marveled, they bore witness to these words when they thought it was just for them. But as you continue to read in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins to actually help them understand that a prophet is accepted everywhere but his own home. And he begins to to speak to them out of some examples in the Old Testament. And he likened it to Elijah, who the Bible says in this chapter, out of all the widows that were in Israel, it was only one, Zarephath, a Sidonian woman that he actually ministered to. And then he goes on and he says in the same chapter that for Elisha, out of all the lepers that were in Israel, it was only one that he ministered to, Naaman, who was a Syrian. And the same people who had just applauded Jesus, who had just bore witness with Jesus, the same people who were excited to hear Jesus unpack and ultimately reveal that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, when they actually heard that this gospel wasn't just for them, but it was for the Sidonian, and it was for the Syrian, these same people were ready to kill him. You don't even get out of Luke chapter 4 before these same people were ready to kill Jesus. You see, but this isn't the only time that we see Jesus confronting racism directly, confronting it in the face In the Gospels, in John chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters, we see Jesus sitting down at the well, having a dialogue with the Samaritan woman. This would have been radical in his context for him to be sitting down, having a conversation, not just with a woman, but with a Samaritan woman, with an ethnic Samaritan Not only does Jesus choose to reveal the true heart of worship to this woman, the first person to ever hear God's heart for true worship was revealed to a Samaritan woman. There's so much significance there. But arguably, this is also the first human being that we see take the revelation of the Messiah, bring it back to her town and village, and evangelize them, many of them beginning to believe upon Jesus. We also see Jesus confronting racism right in its face in Matthew 15, verse 26, when he brought deliverance to a Phoenician woman's daughter. Again, this would have been radical. And in Jesus' own words, he at first tells her deliverance is the children's bread. But because of her consistent cry 
He meets her request and he brings deliverance to this Phoenician woman's daughter. Jesus did not shy away from the issue of racism in his day. In Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus give the parable of the Good Samaritan. That, that's like someone going to a KKK rally and standing up and giving a parable where the black man is the hero. We, we have to understand the historical context of that parable. This was not just a parable that would bring us into a prophetic understanding of who Jesus is or who the church is. This is an example of Jesus confronting racism right in its face. God's heart for racial justice and equity has always meant to be a part of the gospel. It was always meant to be a part of how we tell the good news of Jesus Christ and his life in his ministry. And unfortunately, and this is one of the things that I believe that we as the church must repent of. Unfortunately, many generations have been discipled by a version of the gospel that does not address God's heart for justice. And so because of that and our generation, it's now for a lot of people become a political issue or a social issue. But I'm here to tell you this morning that, that God's heart for justice is not merely a political issue or a social issue, but it's a kingdom invitation. And if God's true heart for justice is going to manifest in the earth, it's going to be because those who have actually through the blood and resurrection of Jesus that have stepped into his kingdom, we Black, white, red, yellow, brown, we as sons and daughters, we begin to lead the dialogue. We begin and continue to be on the front lines of seeing God's heart for justice manifest in our communities. I was called a racial slur the first time at, at six years old, many other times throughout my life. My wife is white. When we got married, her grandpa disowned her, refused to talk to her anymore. It took eight years for him to be willing to see her and another year for him to be willing to see his great-grandchildren. He still won't meet me. But it was my privilege through prayer to give him the honor of meeting his great-grandchildren. And I continue to pray that before he dies, I have the chance to shake his hand and and thank him for being a part of bringing my beautiful wife into this world. Amen, somebody. But this is the reality that many black people face. I've been black in America for 30 years. But here's the thing. That's not what qualifies me to stand on this platform and have this conversation with you. My personal experiences, it's not what qualifies me to stand here and share God's heart for justice. What qualifies me to stand here and share God's heart for justice is the same thing that qualifies every single one of you. And it's the fact that you've been washed in the blood of Jesus. It's the fact that you are saved. It's the fact that he resurrected. And that we now get to share in his life and in his mission and be the representation of his kingdom in the earth. That's what qualifies us. I believe now more than ever, we have got to actually brace ourselves for the difficult, painful journey of having a real conversation about our complicit nature as a church body in this nation when it comes to the issues of racism. Not for the purpose of individual condemnation, shame, or guilt, but so that we can have a genuine and authentic understanding of the history so that we can bring further healing and deliverance and freedom in this current day. That's the reason that we have to have this conversation. 
We have to recognize and see ourselves in Luke chapter 4 that the church too often in America has looked just like the Jews in Luke chapter 4. That as long as the gospel was just for me and mine, I'm amen and I'm shouting it down. I'm excited. But the moment that I realized that the gospel was meant for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, for those that don't look like me, talk like me, dress like me, walk like me. The moment that we realize the gospel is for all people, that we, the church, have had a tendency. We ourselves have had a tendency to put on display racist and hateful characteristics. When you think about the history of racism and slavery in this nation, many of us might be familiar with the Emancipation Proclamation that was signed in 1863. What most people don't understand is that true abolition of slavery didn't actually take place in the nation until 1865 after the Emancipation Proclamation at the end of the Civil War. What even more people don't realize is that it was after the Emancipation Proclamation and after the ending of the Civil War in 1866 that the Ku Klux Klan was formed. Similar to the law that we've been given in God's word, the law in in itself cannot save us, but what it does is rightly reveal the sin nature. So all the Emancipation Proclamation did, all that legislation did, was actually put a mirror up for the nation of America to have to look in so that the true racist and hate-filled hearts that were represented in this nation could be revealed. And some of the grossest and most heinous expressions of racism and hatred, they didn't take place on the plantation. They didn't take place at the hands of slave masters, but they were the the store owners and the judges and the lawyers and the doctors and and mothers just raising their children. It It was at that moment after the legislation that the true hatred and the true racism was put on display. And the church was involved. You see, it was illegal during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War to have integrated worship services. Black ministers were hung. They were lynched for having integrated worship services. C.H. Mason, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, his life was perpetually threatened because he had a vision to see the family of God come together, black and white, worshiping together. After church services during this era, picnics would take place in the the fields and the parks, and they would conclude with a lynching. And you had the ministers and the clergy, you had the elders and all the congregants outside celebrating the lynching of black bodies, the burning of black bodies. Photographs would be taken and they would become postcards that people would write letters to their friends across cities and towns. The church has been complicit. And we have to acknowledge that history. Again, not for the purpose of condemnation, not for the purpose of guilt and shame, but that we can rightfully identify and rightfully bring about restoration because we have an honest understanding of the history and an honest understanding of the past. I believe there is a grace in this hour to respond to the invitation of Isaiah 58 verse 1. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. This was written to the people of God. 
I believe right now there's a grace to respond to the invitation of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways that I will hear from heaven that I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I hear God's heart afresh in this hour as he communicates it through the scripture of Acts 17 verse 30. That God commands everyone in every place now to repent. Joel 2.13 says to rend your heart and not just your garments. Thank you for your Facebook posts. For some of us, that's our first step of getting involved. For some people, that takes a lot of courage to actually stand for justice on social media. But please understand that that is not even the start line. Let's not just rend our garments, but let's rend our hearts. Let's take it to the next level. In Joel chapter 2, verse 17, there's an invitation that's given that those who minister to the Lord, that they would be the ones who would weep between the porch and the altar. In other words, it's not enough for just to have prayer meetings and worship gatherings with black and white churches and the safety and the comfort of the four walls of our church community. But the Lord is looking for those who minister to him to weep, to take the prayer, to take the worship, to take the morning between the porch and the altar, simply put in public. Why? Because the world around around us needs to hear our prayers, needs to see how the church handles the pain and the hurt of racial injustice. We are the only ones that truly have the answer, that truly have the solution. And so we can't just stay in the comfort of the four walls of the church when it comes to this issue, but the Lord is looking for kings and priests, a part of his kingdom, to weep between the porch and the altar. Why? Because those who minister to the Lord, there's weight on that weeping. There's weight on those prayers. There's authority. There's anointing to tear down strongholds and principalities. And we have got to engage with the community. Or else we're going to leave it to the politicians. We're going to leave it to those that only think that this is a social issue, not understanding that true justice can only come as an extension of the just one. There is no such thing as justice apart from God who is just. This is such an amazing opportunity for the church to step in to an apologetic flow. In other words, if you are not washed by the blood of Jesus and if you have not submitted your life to the one who is just upon what moral standard or framework are you even demanding justice? What definition of justice could you possibly have apart from actually having a relationship with the just one? The only reason that injustice exists is because justice itself is eternally true and eternally real. And is the extension of our God who is himself just. The only reason that counterfeit money exists is because money itself is real. So there's an opportunity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to engage in this conversation with true justice. That nobody else in the world can have apart from those who have come into the kingdom of God. This cannot be legislated away. The proof of that is the reality that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1968 some 60 years ago and we're still seeing the exposing 
and the unveiling of this issue in our communities. We cannot leave this to politicians and legislators. The church has to take her rightful place. One of the things that I want to see happen in the church is to go back and look at the life of a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And let's not just see him as a civil rights activist, but let's actually acknowledge him as a theologian. Let's actually acknowledge Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we love to quote. He was not merely a civil rights activist. He was a minister. He was a preacher. And everything that he did was fueled by his understanding of God's heart. He was not a perfect man. None of us are. But one of the things that I believe that has set us back, if you will, in the church is that we have, we have set him aside from actually being a voice that we look to to help us understand biblical theology and the area of justice in many other areas. This is something that we need to see as a central dynamic of how we disciple the body of Christ. I believe as we do this, we will be able to step into the reality of God's heart for us to have clean hands, renewed spirits, pure hearts before him. We have to understand that this this time that we're experiencing, it is an exposing and shaking, a purifying time that we are in, and it's only just begun. It's not, it's not over. But ultimately, it's going to position us even more deeply to begin to desire and long for the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Everything that can be shaken, according to Hebrews 12, 25 through 28, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that we might receive the unshakable kingdom of our God. After the death and the publicizing of Ahmad Aubrey's death, this is what I wrote. Tragic, yes. Unjust, yes. Evil, Yes. Senseless. Yes. Frustrating. Yes. Hopeless. No. Psalm 96, 13 says, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes and he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This continued reminder of injustice, racism, evil, and an inadequate criminal justice system. Yes, it provokes so many emotions and thoughts to process. There are conversations we must have. There is action that must be taken and changes that must be made. These things, however, must continue to anchor us. These things are declaration that the Lord is good. His gospel being the only thing that truly transforms. His judgments being good and that he is the perfect righteous judge coming soon to judge the world in righteousness. These realities should not only anchor us, but they should fuel our confidence to be bold, to lift our voices as we become the evidence and the signpost of Jesus' victory over injustice and his promise to destroy it. Jesus' victory over racism. Jesus' victory over oppression. Jesus' victory over hatred. We should be anything but inactive and passive, but we should be bold in our contending for God's heart for justice in the earth. 
Our lives as a body of Christ should reflect his victory in this way as an everyday lifestyle. As we at the same time mourn, grieve, and lament the painful realities that still exist in this present world. Our prayers, our praise, and our proactive steps of faith to hold our society accountable must be done from a posture of worship and confidence in our king. In other words, this is our response to the gospel. This is a part of how we give thanks and honor and glory. Contending for justice is a part of how we actually worship Jesus in the earth. Amos chapter 5 brings us into God's heart. For true worship. I want to read this in two different versions. Amos 5, 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but instead let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the message translation, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me, says the Lord? Do you know what I truly want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness. I want righteousness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. This is the invitation. This is the invitation. I don't think it's strange that right before Ahmed Arbery's murder was publicized, I just started reading Frederick Douglass's autobiography. I began reading before the tragic news of Ahmad was made known. I read the first chapter even with my kids who are nine, seven, five, and two years old. I didn't spare any of the horrifying details that he retold from his early years as a slave. As I read, the Holy Spirit overcame me and my heart was gripped with the thought of freedom and justice for the slaves, for Frederick Douglass's mother who was raped by her slave master, many believing to be Frederick Douglass's father. The story of Frederick's aunt, who was also raped by the slave master, who was whipped and beaten profusely because he was jealous that another slave was showing interest in her. As I continued reading, something unexpected happened. In the midst of the desire for justice and freedom for the slaves, great anger towards the slave master was equally present. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly to me. The gospel gives you the power to desire the slave master's salvation and freedom too. And as much as I'd like to sit here before you today that I was quick to embrace that reality, I'd be lying to you. But there was anger and frustration and revenge in my heart. I stopped reading immediately, and in all honesty, I was not quick to celebrate that thought. It was hard. I don't know how those two emotions could coexist and be real in me. But I realized in that moment that this is one of the reasons that Jesus alone, he is the one found worthy. For he alone was able to pray for the the very ones who beat him and were nailing him to the cross while dying from suffocation. I could have never done that. And the only way for me to have embraced that invitation that Holy Spirit was bringing to me in that moment was to give myself 
to the reality of Jesus' life arising in me. I'm not all the way there yet, but I'm on the journey. And I'm grateful that I had that moment with the Lord before the news of Ahmed Aubrey's murder. After George Floyd was murdered, this is what I wrote. This is a time of revealing, exposing, and purifying. For the righteous, it is a fortifying faith season. For those that are righteous, who aren't waiting for Jesus to return to put on the robes of righteousness that we were actually called to live on the earth wearing today. For the true righteous, this is a season where our faith is being fortified. Our commitment to Jesus and the full gospel of his kingdom is increasing. For those who call themselves Christians, but only in name, having form without power, who have gotten in bed with the religious spirit and the political spirit, you can read about that in Mark 8, 15, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But we know that Jesus would go on to teach us about a third leaven. That's the leaven of the kingdom in Matthew 13, 33. What is that really saying? The religious spirit is going to attack our pure, unadulterated worship of Jesus. Not the worship of our traditions, not even the worship of our doctrinal distinctives, but the true, undefiled, pure worship of Jesus alone. The political spirit is going to attack where we find our loyalty and our allegiance. Who is it that we're actually looking to, to bring the provision, to bring the protection? If we're looking to the government, we've slipped. Now, that is not an invitation to be unengaged. I believe as Christians, it's a part of our worship to be engaged in political matters, but not because we think that an elephant or a donkey is ever going to bring about the kingdom of righteousness and peace that the Lord alone has commissioned us as his bride to bring. So I believe one of the things that God is doing is he's shaking the church where we are being set free of the leaven of the Pharisees, the religious spirit, and the leaven of Herod, the political spirit. And we are actually becoming more aligned with the leaven of the kingdom and that of our king. For those who refuse, this season will be a season of revealing, of instability, the perverted loyalties, and the ineffectiveness of trying to respond to the invitation to advance the gospel separate and ultimately disconnected from true alignment with God's kingdom. God is not only present in the big picture, but he is drawing so close to those who are crying out to him, whose eyes are locked on his son, the perfect one. His true leaders, their voices in the true church is going to come through this with greater favor. Hear me today. With greater influence, with greater confidence to minister to their cities and communities, specifically oppressed and marginalized people groups. As sons and daughters, kings and priests, we are learning to engage from our position, seated with Christ in heavenly places According to Ephesians 2 verse 6, through prayer and through fasting, through weeping, through worship, and through action, the war we have to understand is in the heavenlies. According to Ephesians 6 verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. 
Jesus' example of loving our enemies, doing good to those who hate us, praying for those who use us and persecute us, being kind to the unthankful and the evil. Go read the Sermon on the Mount afresh as our response to what's happening in this climate. Dying on the cross, this is the only way. And what we're experiencing is a time, is an hour where we're not only worshiping Jesus for getting on his cross, but in a very real way, we are learning that the true invitation was to get on our own. He came as the example. He came as the model to show us this is the way into my father's kingdom. And this is the way that my father's kingdom will be advanced. And I've left you here as my representatives to model it in the earth. The kingdom of God, it will manifest no other way. The only reason we can now do this too is because he resurrected. Because Jesus Christ has shared his authority with us. He shared his glory with us according to John 17 verse 22. This doesn't mean there isn't room for lament, mourning, frustration, exhaustion, and grieving. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that we are to be passive or inactive yet again. But what it does mean is that our action is to be motivated by the victory that Jesus has already won. We fight from victory, not for victory. It means that our action should look radically different than anyone else because of who we belong to and what he has done for us. As painful as these days are, they are necessary. As uncomfortable as these days are, they are necessary. This is speaking of things on a high level, and we could talk a lot more about the bigger picture of all of this. But even on a heart-to-heart level, person-to-person, I believe there is so much healing that is coming and will continue to come because of the conversations that are happening right now. That apart from the unveiling and the exposing, light dragging darkness from behind its shadows, Because of that, there's conversations and there's restoration that's happening all over the world. God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste our pain. He doesn't waste our hurt. He doesn't waste our frustration. He uses it all for his glory and for his purposes. We are stepping into each other's shoes to listen, to learn, to love more deeply and more fully. At the end of the day, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for a bride that looks like him. This won't be the last purifying season that rids us of our hidden offense towards Jesus and his kingdom. The fruit will be a bride who desires and longs for Jesus, who longs for his return in a fresh and deep way. The result of this will be an even greater commitment to advance his gospel, which undoubtedly includes contending for justice in the earth. It will increase our commitment, our response to the invitation of Matthew 24, 14, to disciple the nations. The Bible says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in every nation, to every nation. That word nation in the Greek is is ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity from. In other words, he's saying this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every people group. And only then will the end come. We have to see this as our vision. And let me pause here to speak to the hearts of many who may, even in times of being engaged in this conversation in the past, 
you meant well, but you spoke to a black brother or sister. You said, well, I'm not racist. I don't see color. No, I want you to see my color because my heavenly father does. He made this black chocolate skin, and he made your vanilla peach skin. And my Bible tells me in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will be present worshiping at the throne of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, even after he returns, there will still be the beautiful, unique distinction among people groups. Zechariah 14 tells us that there's an invitation that's going to go out in the earth for all nations to come and worship Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles after he returns. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 tells me that out of one blood, our God created every nation, every people group, and he's the one that set the limits and the boundaries of their prophetic destiny. So I forgive you if you've ever said you don't see color. I deliver you now from being colorblind. See my black skin and celebrate with me as I celebrate with you the beautiful, unique cultures that we represent. The beautiful prophetic destinies that every tribe and tongue has resting over them as we with one voice and one sound and one heart Make known the glory of our God. I want to leave you today with an invitation to continue to engage in this conversation with some practical steps. As I've been speaking in my own living room, as we disciple people in our home every week, as I've been speaking to pastors from all over uh, the nation, the Lord has given me this framework that I want to share with you today that I want to leave with you. Four phases of how we can begin to move forward, as we can, how we can continue to engage in this fight for God's heart for justice. Number one is education and awareness. Again, this is a discipleship opportunity. We've got to start preaching a gospel that includes God's heart for justice again. And I'm so grateful to be here at Faith Assembly who is already committed to that. We have to understand the history. Hosea 4 and 6 says that the people of God are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We need to understand that racism didn't end with the Emancipation Proclamation. It didn't end after the Civil Rights Movement. But some of the grossest acts of systemic racism continued to happen in the 80s, in the 90s. Redlining, where banks were legally allowed to discriminate, giving loans to black families who were looking to purchase a house for the first time just because of the color of their skin. The reality that here in the United States, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners, 40% of them are black. There's real reasons behind this that are systemic in the very fabric of the systems of our society. We need to have an honest conversation about how this has even played out in the medical, in, in the, the, the hospitals, the medical sphere of our society, where in the 1840s, black women were, were experimented on when gynecology was being birthed as a, as a medicine and as a science, surgeries were taking place on their bodies with no anesthesia because they, they believed the lie that black people didn't feel pain. We have to have an honest conversation about these things, understanding the existing and the current realities of systemic racism, the innovation and the creativity of black people being suppressed in this nation. 
These lights that we enjoy, they wouldn't exist without the help of Lewis Latimer, who was also an inventor that created the filament. Thomas Edison gets the credit, but without the filament, these lights wouldn't work. But we weren't taught that in our schools. We have to have an honest conversation about the explorer, Matthew Henson who was the first to discover the North Pole, but he waited for his white counterpart, Robert Perry, and Robert Perry took all the credit. An honest conversation about the man, George Lyle, who was the first to actually take the gospel from the United States, and he evangelized and did missions work in the Jamaicas. The first missionary from this nation. Through education and awareness, we can close the proximity We can close the gap and the distance between us and the history that is both the reality of the past but is also still present today. And as we can come closer to it, it increases our ability to lean into the second phase, which is empathy and affirmation. And yes, these all start with E's and A's. I'm a preacher, okay? I can't help it. But empathy and affirmation is the second phase. We have to learn to not just affirm And not just acknowledge the pain and the hurt, but to actually empathize with it. Romans 12, 15 tells us to mourn with those who mourn. Let's change garments. Feel the pain of the oppressed. Feel the hurt. Let's step into each other's shoes. Through empathy and affirmation, great healing will come. And it actually becomes a gateway to increased anointing. Number three, equipping in action. My Bible tells me in 1 John 3, 18, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. After we have given ourselves to the education and awareness, as we have allowed ourselves to empathize and affirm the history, the experiences, the pain of those who have been oppressed because of racial injustice, and we sit in the pain for a little bit, we sit in the discomfort, let's not rush past it. There's usefulness to feeling the hurt and the pain. Again, not for shame and guilt, not for condemnation. Let me release you of that right now. I have no reason to believe that there's a single person in here that has a racist bone in their body. But if we're going to represent the heart of our Father, we have to engage, and we cannot run from the pain of it. We have to look at it head on. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that in this season as a black man I get to be the liberator of my white brothers and sisters and tell you you don't have to prove to me that you're not racist I'm just asking you to link arms with me to continue to link arms with your pastor as you intentionally bring an end to racial injustice as our response to the gospel and the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ if that's not the gospel to be a black man who has the privilege to help to see shame and guilt and helplessness broken off of my white brothers and sisters whose faces reflect the very oppressor that my people were oppressed by if that's not the gospel I don't know what is from equipping and action we get to move into the vision of equity and alliance not stopping short with just equality. Here's the distinction. Equality simply ensures that we have the same opportunity. But it stops short of making sure that the path towards that opportunity is fair. We need equity for that. And so we need the body of Christ to represent, to speak to, and to bring practical solutions and expressions of not just equality, but equity. And that's going to happen as we come together, alliances between the local congregation, parachurches, the marketplace. 
those who sit on our city council as we come together, the church leading the way, the gospel leading the way, the revelation knowledge of Jesus leading the way, we can see real and practical, economic and social solutions brought to the pain and to the heartache of racial injustice and what it's done to all of us. This is the invitation of the Lord in this hour. What if this is the revival we've been praying for? What if this is the third great awakening that past generations were prophesying about? What if it took a global pandemic and the further revealing of racial injustice to shake the church so that we would actually begin to contend for the outpouring of God's spirit in our generation, that we would actually begin to contend in a way that we never have before for a gospel movement in our cities to break out. I believe that that's possible right here in Uniontown. This is a great season. This season is of great significance that we are in. And I believe that Psalm 107, 35 through 37 paints the picture that I personally want to identify with. That the Lord, he is the one that turns a wilderness into pools of water. He is the one that takes dry land and makes it water springs. That he is the one who makes the hungry dwell in that place. That we may be the ones to establish a city for a dwelling place and a resting place of our God. Sowing fields and planting vineyards that we might see our Heavenly Father receive a great and mighty and fruitful harvest. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Lift your hands up like you're about to receive something. Father, I thank you right now for the sweetness of your presence, the sweetness of your spirit. Thank you right now, Lord. We receive your heart. We receive your heart, Father. And I thank you that I am in a community right now among family who have said yes to the reality of Proverbs 21 verse 3 where you said to do justice and righteousness is better than sacrifice. God, I thank you that I am in a church right now that has said yes to the invitation of Micah 6 verse 8 to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our Heavenly Father. And as they receive a fresh and increased grace of your spirit to continue to say yes to this invitation, I want to invite my brother Josiah to come and pray over them. So, Lord, I pray right now, right now, that they would just receive from you, receive from you in the name of Jesus. Uh, I shared this with the first service, and I'll share it again. One thing that's been on my heart all morning, a phrase that just keeps popping up, is that I believe what unites us is far greater than what has attempted to divide us. And I believe the invitation of the Holy Spirit for this morning is for us to do this together. So that's the prayer I want to lead into as we wrap up this morning. So Holy Spirit, Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you, God, for your heart. God, we thank you, Lord, for your desire. God, we thank you for your will and your way. God, I thank you for this house. Lord, I thank you for every individual, Lord God, under the sound of my voice, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, for tender hearts that desire to know you and to make your name known. So Holy Spirit, God, I ask God that this message would not fall on deaf ears on this morning, Lord God, but I ask God that you would ingrain this into the fabric of our hearts, Lord, in the name of Jesus. 
Holy Spirit, I ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. God, I ask God that the message of justice would not be used to divide your people, Lord God, but let us bring us together like never before. God, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, Lord God, calling upon the name of Jesus. Lord, I ask God that you would do it now and in this day, Lord God, and even specifically, Holy Spirit, as I pray, God, in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Lord God, I say, Holy Spirit, do it here. Lord, in the name of Jesus, Lord God, don't allow us, Lord God, to make excuses, Lord God, for why we've chosen, Lord God, as a church to remain segregated, Lord God. But I pray, Lord God, that you would bring us together, Lord God. I ask God for supernatural encounters with the Holy Spirit, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Would you do what only you can do? Lord, would you tear down, God, every, Lord God, ounce of division, Lord, and every, Lord God, ounce of separation, Lord God, and I ask God that you would unite our hearts God now so Holy Spirit, I say in faith, Lord God, we believe in a day, Lord, we believe in a day, Lord God, that you're going to wipe away every tear, Lord God, when you're going to heal us, Lord God, of every ounce of pain, Lord God, and when you're going to unite your people, Lord, I pray the prayer of John 17, Lord, I say, Holy Spirit, make us one. God, you're coming back for one body, one bride, Lord God. Lord, you're coming back for one people, Lord God, without spot, or without blemish, Lord God. So I say in faith, Jesus, we look forward to that day. That's what all of this is about. That's what the message of justice is about, Lord God. It's about looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So Jesus, I say we look to you, God, and we believe you. And we believe you. And I, I just want to take a moment, if you guys can do me a favor, let's, let's be intentional for a moment. Let's literally, out of our heart, out of our mouths, confess, Jesus, we believe you. So many times it's easy to become hopeless on different topics, especially this one. But I say in faith, Jesus, we believe you and we agree. We agree with your will, your plan, your purposes. Holy Spirit, even if we don't fully understand, God, we agree with your desire. And so many times I know, I'm not going to labor, uh, be labor, but so many times I know when we don't understand, understand a, sp a specific subject, it's hard to agree. But let's just in faith choose supernaturally, Lord, do it in us, God. Do it in us, Lord God. Lord, we say in faith, we agree with your will, God, whatever that looks like. Lord, if we want to allow our own paradigm, Lord God, even myself as an African-American male, God, I speak, Lord God, for our, Lord God, side of the street, Lord God, we want to allow, God, our own paradigm, Lord God, to limit us, Lord God. But we say your will, your way, your plans, your purposes, whatever that looks like, Jesus, we agree. And Father, as we agree, give us grace to do it together. God, may the first and the second commandment, Lord God, be our, our greatest love, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, may that be real. May that be real in our hearts today. God, give us grace to love our neighbor as ourselves for real. So I say, Jesus, we believe you, we trust you, we love you, and we love one another. Do what only you can do in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.